All right, the passage reads, For the word of, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach, preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Good morning. Got a great, great group out here today and good morning Zoom folks or folks who are Zooming, person first language. Um, man, it was great to sing again, wasn't it? So wonderful. All right. Um, we've been focusing on reasons God is worthy of worship. It's our theme for 2020, worship. And we just really kind of curated all these biblical reasons. And they're just, it's, it's really an almost limitless list of reasons that we should want to worship God, love God above all else, uh, adore God, pay homage to God, and so on. Uh, the various ways in which his tremendous awe-inspiring glory is manifested. Well, on the night before Jesus' death, right after predicting Judas's betrayal, during the Last Supper, Jesus said something quite extraordinary, quite surprising about his impending cross. You know, the next day he would go to the cross. And as Jake said a minute ago, during this meal of forgiveness, he, he actually singles out Judas and says, you're going you're gonna to betray me. And as Judas leaves, Jesus says these words, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. That's a surprising thing to say because he's equating the looming cross with glory. And this identification of, of a, a Roman cross with something like glory would have been shocking to first century ears. I've been reading a book over the past week or so, just a, a remarkable book by um, a woman named Fleming Rutledge. It's a tome, uh, just one of the most exhaustive treatments I've ever seen on, on the crucifixion, and it's a wonderful book. Uh, what a, it's a blessing to me. It's exceedingly biblical, just great exegesis. And she writes, I'm going to quote her two or three times today. She says this, that Christianity is unique in that the Christian faith glorifies as son of God a man who was degraded and dehumanized by his fellow human beings as much as it is, it is possible to be by a decree from both church and state, and that he died in a way designed to subject him to utmost contempt, and finally, to erase him from human memory. That's what the cross was for. That's what Rome reserved it for. They killed people lots of ways. The cross was a statement about you are erased. 
you are a zero. You do not count. You're invisible. You don't exist anymore. Caesar's in charge. Thank you very much. And the Christian claim at its most fundamental core is that the being who met that fate is actually God. <laughs> to say that's surprising or a little counterintuitive is to be really uh, understated, an understatement. And I wonder if the cross has lost its jarring sense for us. Have we held on to the symbol of the cross, but perhaps lost its significance? We live in a society with a widespread civil religion, as sociologists call it. A civil religion, which routinely invokes the name of Christ and so readily claims Christianity for everything. Political causes, products you can buy in stores and online, a heritage that is mixed at best that we claim is the Christian heritage. I mean, we just throw those words around Christ, the cross, Christianity, willy-nilly because Christianity has a big place in our, our history, at least a form of it. And it's just in the air we breathe, at least many of us. And so we need to be careful lest we have become guilty of domesticating God, putting him and his gospel in a handy little box, which we then can then manage and control and deploy as we see fit. It, it's a very empowering feeling to do so, but we may be distorting the very thing we're doing it with as we do it. And when we do that for long enough, we gradually change the meaning, the very content of what Christianity, quote-unquote, and the gospel, quote-unquote, even mean. And we lose the ability, tragically, to actually hear what God might say to us. The ability to be surprised by his message, to not every time the words trotted out or we assemble for a sermon to go, yeah, I, I know all that. I got that. I got Christianity. According to the New Testament, the content of that message is simple, but profound and highly counterintuitive. It is this, Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and at verse 23, the passage that Greg just read for us, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That may be a stumbling block to the Jews, and it may be utter folly to the Gentiles, but that's what we preach. That's our message. The content of the message is Christ crucified. The message is the cross. But even the cross can be co-opted. It can be, as Paul wrote back in verse 17 of chapter 1, the cross can be emptied of its power. And why we would want as human beings to empty it of its content and to fill it with something more agreeable, more palatable, is pretty obvious. Paul himself, on two different occasions, in 1 Corinthians 1 and in Galatians 5, says that the preaching of the cross is an offense, or your version may read, a stumbling block. Those English words are translations of the Greek word skandalon, from which we get our English word scandal. Scandalous. 
Paul says there's something inherent to the preaching of the cross that is scandalous. It's offensive. It's a stumbling block, even a roadblock to where you should go. And so, like anybody else, then or now, we may claim the term cross, appropriate its symbol, but it becomes in our hands an empty shell, a slogan, merely a vessel to cart around the same old worldly values and conventions that have been here since humanity began. began. The cross loses its ability to stop us in our tracks, to reformat everything, to truly re reform and renew. But I want to suggest to you this morning briefly that in the cross, God intends to surprise us, to turn our conventions on their head. So I want to suggest to you from this reading, 1 Corinthians 1, the excerpt that Greg read a minute ago, three ways that the cross should revolutionize how we see everything. And it applies to everything. There, there are three that I notice in this text. First of all, the cross revolutionizes our view of power. The cross also revolutionizes how we see people. And thirdly, it revolutionizes how we see human potential. Power, people, and potential, all radically changed, turned upside down by the cross of Calvary. First of all, it redefines power. The cross redefines power. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this, For the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's power. And in verse 23 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, whether Jew or Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, to say the least, the world, including, if we're honest, folks, most people throughout history who've claimed to follow the crucified one, relies on the only kind of power it has ever trusted as realistic. Power means power. It's very conventional. You can slap a cross on it and call it Christian, but they're still making power plays 24-7. Read the news. Watch the news. Who isn't doing that right now? I or we or the good guys should seize control. We should maintain control. We should get back control. That's power language, and it's very conventional worldly power dynamics. And the cross cuts against that in every way possible. The cross looks like weakness. It was weakness. It was the epitome of weakness, powerlessness. Fleming Rutledge again says this, referring to what Paul says in uh, his writings about the cross, when he says it's, it's an offense or it's a scandal or it's a stumbling block. She says, it sometimes seems as though the modern church has willfully decided to ignore the radical content of such passages, even though they're in their Bible. And they concentrate instead on a more generic, less offensive interpretation of Jesus' death, where you still get to act like people always have, to hold power and to maintain power and to grab power in the conventional methods and call it Christianity. It's the opposite of the cross. For Jesus' contemporaries, 
to suggest that giving up one's will, giving up one's well-being, surrendering even one's own life was the ticket to power? Well, that amounted to folly. That's insanity. It makes no sense. In fact, it's scandalous to ask other people to embrace this as their morality, as their basic, basic ethical uh, you know, purpose in life, an MO. And yet that, that's exactly what Jesus called his followers to do. It's not close to what he called, it's exactly what he called them to do, repeatedly. And then it's in the epistles of Paul and Peter. What would Jesus do? The passage from which that came is 1 Peter 2, where Peter is saying, Jesus went to the cross. Now you need to do that every day. He called his followers to this, not as an idea to affirm or talk about in a Bible class or you know, put on stationery or bumper stickers or political slogans, but as a principle to live out in the real world, the world of, of our work. Does it have any meaning there? The, wor the world of our friendships, the world of politics and family, of school and church. And Paul himself took it so seriously. Remember what he says in his second epistle to the Corinthians? He had the thorn in the flesh and he prayed repeatedly that, that, that God would remove it. And God's answer was basically no. I'm picking up the text in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Notice this, for my power is made perfect or complete or full in what? Weakness. And Paul gets it. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul inverts weakness and strength. He says, you're actually the least powerful when you think you're powerful and strong and in charge. When things are going your way. But when you embrace weakness in light of the cross, you become strong. And so he took this personally as something to do in the real world, not just to write epistles about or have modern Christians have Bible classes about. It revolutionizes power, does the cross. But it's not just power. The cross also changes how we see people, the human beings that we interact with day in, day out, in our homes, at work, on the streets, virtually through social media or what have you. And it changes how we see people, namely in terms of the kind of people who matter. So what I'm talking about here is it revolutionizes our views of status. Status. Who's important? Who counts? Who's visible? Who's unimportant? Who doesn't matter so much to be? Who are the people I've trained myself not to even notice or to dismiss? That's all about status. They're implicit ideas about status, about pecking orders, about hierarchies, about what gives people value and importance and weight and glory, to use the Bible word, behind all of our interactions with people daily. I want to turn your attention now to the next paragraph following the one Greg read at the outset. This is still in 1 Corinthians 1, but it's verses 26 through 31. And as we read it, I want you to notice how Paul seamlessly shifts to the social implications of the word of the cross. So he says this beginning in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. He says, Corinthian church, just look at yourself. Look at the, the kind of people that compose your church. 
you know, if they'd had a, an app like Randy set up for us, a church directory, he'd say, get out your church directory. Think about these people and the kind of jobs they do and how much income they have and, the, you know, the sort of socioeconomic status of these people. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Instead, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you and I would follow a king who gave up everything, splendor, wealth, the privileges of heaven, to die in the most degrading, dehumanizing way possible, you and I are committing, by definition, to a new reality in which status, the kind of people we think are important, has been flipped upside down. No? Through the lens of Christ's crucifixion, people who, who were invisible become visible. People who seemed irrelevant become all important. People who, who did not matter, matter. The kinds of things as well that make someone important, the criteria we use implicitly or explicitly every day, are radically revolutionized. To embrace the cross is to accept a kind of social divestment, to use Fleming Rutledge's word. word. We divest ourselves of all this sort of status consciousness and this pecking order that we tend to, you know, hew toward if we're not careful. In Philippians 3, Paul gives us an example of this again in his own person when he said he once had confidence in the flesh and he lists all the criteria for that. And they're very conventional things. Your achievements, the people you've impressed, your connections, you know. Paul would have had a lot of Facebook likes among nerds, rabbinical nerds, but he would have had a lot. He, he was doing it the right way. And he says, all of that is now a big old stinky. It's a diaper. Not a before diaper, an after diaper. That's the word he uses, right? We talked about that. All right, so the cross redefines power. It changes how we see people, and it revolutionizes, finally, how we see human potential. Human potential. Many folks are quite cynical about the potential for good that human beings possess. And I, I have to say, in a sense, they have a pretty good case. Cause history, right? They look around and they see a world full of people who've made a mess of their lives and have taken many others down with them. We're just 20 years removed from a century that set records in human history for bloodshed. It blew them away. Two world wars, both of which killed millions upon millions of people, with other wars that are less, you know, that are eclipsed in, the rep, in, the, in, in our memories, but that happened nonetheless in the 20th century, and a few genocides thrown in for bad measure. And much of that was perpetrated by the most educated, technologically advanced societies the world had ever produced. And people don't believe in evil. 
But the cross says, yes, there's evil. Jesus took it on himself when he went there. But it says something surprising, shocking even, about human potential, at least in God's hands, at least in light of the cross. It says that we are redeemable. 1 Corinthians 1 again, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to naught the things that are. He cares about the despised and the lowly. And he says this in verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us redemption. Last word of verse 30. There's our word, redemption. Because of what Christ did on the cross, he inaugurated a brand new possible reality for human beings, and that is real redemption. Remember that list of things Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter nine, I'm sorry, chapter six of the first epistle. He says, all of y'all used to be sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers. Uh, he goes through this list of all these awful things, swindlers and so on. He goes, that, no, people like that are not gonna inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this in verse 11 of chapter six, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Redemption is possible. And that's the third revolutionary thing about the cross. Through God's grace poured out there, we losers are offered real forgiveness, actual redemption. Imagine that. I say imagine that because I'm skeptical about the level to which human beings, at least in my world, really believe in grace because you really believe something if you practice it not if you blog about it or post about it practice jesus said fruits or how you know somebody do we really believe in grace everybody loves grace in theory i've never met a person who says grace is a bad idea but few people are willing to extend it when the going gets tough exhibit a social media you can't have made a mistake 75 years ago, right? And I promise you, studying history a little bit, a lot of what goes around is going to come around. Um, everything is just crystal clear right now for some of us. About 10, 15, 20 years from now, there'll be a sea change, and some of the stuff you put on the record, you're going to be wanting to retract or at least edit. Nope. No second chances. There's a self-righteousness. Maybe it's just me. There's a self I agree with a lot of the causes out there that want to change things. I do. I think there's a lot we need to change. We've we had a jacked up past in many ways. A lot of good, but let's don't just be believers in mythology. But self-righteousness isn't the answer. Because the critic who is legitimately launching the complaint and saying we need to change something is also a sinner has also got some jacked up ideas. They may not realize it yet. That's the most dangerous kind of self-righteousness. But do we really believe in grace on the ground? Do we really believe in redemption? Can you come back? If not, who in this, sorry to say room, in this lawn, who in the world has any hope? Don't we all need redemption? Second and third and fourth and 50th chances? And the cross says, guess what? Genuine redemption, genuine forgiveness, actual real grace is available. 
And it's hard to come by in the world, even in the religious world. Here, uh, Fleming Rutledge, one more time. She says this, talking about the, the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. She says, the Christian gospel is unique in that unlike the world's religions, Jake was talking about this, what distinguishes it? And I think he was hitting on a lot of the same things I'm talking about. The Christian religion, unlike all the other ones, promises to justify the ungodly. It begins with the axiom, there is none righteous, no, not one. Those are all my words, not hers. Now, here comes the quote. Therefore, that was the, my paraphrase of the context, so we can hit the ground running. It starts with, there is none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, she writes, referencing that text, and I'm now quoting Rutledge, the apostolic message, the word of the cross, can no longer be called a religion. Huh? You think of Christianity as a religion? She's saying, not really. So different from all the other religions as to not even really qualify as a religion. Religion, in its multifaceted and almost infinite forms, teaches us how to become godly and promises blessings to those who succeed in becoming godly. The only provision in religion for the ungodly is to turn to religion. But that's kind of catch-22. There is no good news in religion for those who have not turned or cannot turn, who fail to turn. A crucial aspect of the radical newness of the Christian gospel is the word it speaks precisely to those who are, to use Paul's language from Ephesians, without God in the world. Religion is recognizably religious. Contrarily, if the gospel could be explained in ordinary religious terms, it would no longer be called foolishness or scandalon. Close quote. That's how humans are, even religious humans. Talk about grace. Just let somebody make, up, make a really bad boo-boo in a whole lot of churches. Do they really get to come back? Not usually. We put all kinds of footnotes on it. There's still judgment. There's still talk. You got memories a lot like elephants. But God is not like us. Praise God, He's not like us. Here again, the word of the cross defies human logic. It, his ways are not our ways, He surprises us with the cross. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You know, what do we tell people sometimes? We tell a friend or a brother and sister in Christ when they're going through a difficult time, something hard in their life, something that's theologically confusing, and they're really wondering where God is and why he's not showing up and solving the problems they've been begging him in their prayers night after night, tearfully to solve. And we may remind them of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says this. Isaiah 55 and 8 says, it's God speaking to us through the prophet. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we say, you know, God moves in mysterious ways. We don't have his perspective, and his ways and thoughts are higher than ours, so hang in there. And we quote that text as if the text is talking in context about God's mysterious providence or something. But is this text actually talking about God's providence? Is that the context? You ever read the verses around it? It's actually not at all talking about that. Let's take a closer look. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but, or just listen. Isaiah 55 sure doesn't begin as some kind of treatise on the providence of God. Instead, it begins in verses 1 and following as a statement about God graciously inviting broken people to come feast with him, to enjoy his presence. Hear the prophet. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, there's just a free feast for everybody. You don't have to merit it. You don't have to have a bank account. You don't have to be successful. Just show up if you're hungry. I will fill you. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Wow. That's what Isaiah 55 is about. And then in verses 7 and 8, he really gets down to the point of the text. This is what he says. Let him return to the Lord. Let the wicked return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him. Isaiah 55, 7. And return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. A compassionate God who doesn't just pardon, he abundantly pardons. And what's the very next verse? Sinner, come to this God who abundantly pardons. I promise you, he's really compassionate. And God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. What's he saying here? He is trying to woo sinners who can no longer believe they're redeemable. They've gone too far into sin to be salvageable. He's trying to woo them back. They're sure that the real world doesn't work that way. Redemption isn't possible. You don't get grace. People talk about it. You don't really get it. Not even from believers. And God is saying, guess what? You're dealing with a being who is fundamentally different from all of that. From the conventions of the world, religions, religious or otherwise, God's thoughts, he says, are not the world's thoughts. His ways are not your ways. And none of this, folks, if we're honest, is what we would have ever dreamt in our wildest fantasies about God. We wouldn't come up with this. We'd come up with yet another religion. If you mind your P's and Q's, you get goodies which is bad news because none of us does. That's the starting point for the Bible. So Jake's right. It's completely unique. God shows us that he is someone different from what we'd have dreamed up. He surprises us. And he is a God whose glory is most evident in the cross of Christ. So we should resolve with the Apostle Paul not to glory in anything, Galatians 6, 4, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Thanks a lot.